0: Welcome to the Political Economy Podcast. I'm your host, Jim Pethokoukos of the American Enterprise Institute. Each week, I feature a lively conversation with experts on some of the most important economic and policy questions of our time. If you enjoy this podcast, please consider rating and reviewing it on iTunes, Google Podcasts, or Stitcher. Ratings and reviews really help with the podcast visibility, and I always appreciate the feedback. Thanks, and on to the show. America's kids have been greatly affected by the pandemic, from canceled sports seasons, to constant academic disruption. And at the same time, parents are caught up in bitter disputes over masking and critical race theory in schools. To get a better sense of the education challenges we face coming out of the pandemic, as well as the reforms that will help us meet those challenges, I've brought on Rick Hess. Rick is my colleague at the American Enterprise Institute where he's a senior fellow and director of Education Policy Studies. Among Rick's recent work on K-12 and higher education issues is, Education After the Pandemic, written for the Winter 22 issue of National Affairs. Rick, welcome to the podcast. Hey, thanks for having me. How severe have the negative effects of this pandemic been on K-12 through education, and how sticky do we think those effects are going to be?
1: Uh, the effects are devastating. We've seen kids lose probably, depends how you tally this up, somewhere between a half to a full year of academic learning. Uh, we've seen massive health and psychological effects. Uh, you know, we know that attempted suicide is through the roof, reports of loneliness and isolation. Uh, nobody's been keeping an eye on kids in abusive situations. So it's not only massively negative academic effects, but also social and emotional. And then look, um, no, to no one's surprise, the effects are amplified for the most vulnerable kids. Uh, if you were in uh, a high poverty community, if you're in a rundown apartment rather than a home with space to uh, spread out your computer and play in the yard, it's no great surprise that those kids
0: suffered more both academically and socially. There was a big story in the uh, New York Times about the, sort of the cost of these school closures, and there was a quote. Uh, from an education department official, and the quote is, I'm afraid that while school agencies are planning a range of activities for catch-up, their plans are just not commensurate with the losses. Uh, Not shocking. Uh, What are we doing to catch these kids up? Or is that really ever going to happen? No, it's not going to happen. We have no idea how to catch these kids up.
1: I mean, you know, we've we've been trying really hard to reform American education for certainly since nation at risk 39 years ago, arguably for at least a half century. um, Look, it's not like somebody has the right answers and in some school of education somewhere, they've got them locked away in the closet and now we're finally going to crack them out. Reality is, um, you know, we don't have any good solutions to help kids catch up. And in fact, the solutions we have that are most promising are the ones that are right now under attack from the education establishment we have seen charter schools launched, which used really crazy strategies. Um, They set high expectations. They expect kids to work hard. uh, They extended the school day. uh, They were uh, very diligent about who they hired. And those same schools are now rapidly retreating from the things that made them successful. So what are we doing? Well, we we put more than $200 billion uh, through COVID emergency funds into K-12 education. Um, As our colleague, Matt Malkin, has reported you know most of that money has not yet been spent and what are school districts doing with it well they're using it to give teachers bonuses uh they're using it uh you know they're at the collective bargaining table and they are giving unions larger raises than they would have um they are adding more bodies across the board although they don't know what they're going to do with those bodies when these funds run out uh, look we've been trying to tutor kids you know better part of what. Three millennia. Uh, I, I believe these guys, you know, Plato and Socrates had some thoughts on the value of tutoring. Um, it's great. It's powerful. Roland Fryer's work uh, documenting some of this uh, in Boston charter schools was used by the Houston School District uh, in the early part of the last decade uh, to try to drive improvement. Problem with tutoring is it's hard to find enough good tutors. It's hard to keep the tutors you got. It's hard to train the tutors to be effective. It's hard to match the kids with tutors at work. The so tutoring swell. But the idea that somebody has got this recipe that's going to get these kids where they need to be is, I think, wishful thinking. We would need a lot of tutors, right?
0: <laughs> a a lot. lot of kids. <laughs> All right.
1: um, so, you know, they, they had this thing. So the, 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 it was called Apollo 20. Houston had this terrific superintendent years ago named Terry Greer. Uh, he, got, he met Roland Fryer, who did this wonderful work on this up at Harvard. They built uh, Apollo like the moon launch. I think it was at uh, fifth grade and ninth grade, they decided to do targeted tutoring. Uh, I think tutors were working two on one, three on one with kids, just fifth and ninth grade, just selected schools. They still needed hundreds of tutors. And the problem is in order to afford these tutors, you can't pay that much because you need hundreds of these guys. Right. And so they were paying something like 20 or $24,000 a year. Um, and you were mostly getting student, you know, graduate students or retirees, even so they were losing more than 50% of their tutors a year. So the idea that in a place like Birmingham, Alabama or New York City, that you're going to just gonna find thousands or tens of thousands of tutors who are gonna line up, get trained, show up, do their job reliably for a year or two years or three years even if we have the recipe to help make this tutoring uh, uh, successful, it's uh, you know the, the the logistics of it are really you know remarkably tough.
0: Alternatives uh, to traditional schooling, whether it's homeschooling you mentioned, charter school, or or remote learning, what did we learn about th- about these alternatives? Um, I think you know mostly everything that we
1: thought was true is even more true than we thought. Um, that remote learning is great for some kids. If you get bullied in school or you're frustrated waiting for everybody else to figure out the math problem, remote learning we knew could be fantastic for those kids. And we've seen a lot of kids love it. Uh, We know that a lot of families feel disconnected uh, from their kids' education. They feel like schools don't do a good job of partnering with them or inviting them in. They feel like they don't know what happens at school. once parents were able to look over the kid's shoulder when they were Zooming at the kitchen table, we heard this in spades. Um, we also know that remote learning generally stinks. Um, and you know, after a year and a half of Zoom in a room, more in some places like Los Angeles or New York, where Democrats were just refusing to reopen schools, um, we've seen just how incredibly awful this is for engaging kids, for keeping them um, feeling valued, Part of a classroom environment um but look i don't, I don't think that's actually and you, i mean you, you know you're a guy who writes all the time <laughs> so i don't have to explain this to you um this is not an indictment of the technology the idea that you can that, that we can sit here and talk to each other across tens or hundreds of thousands of miles is remarkable the idea that a kid can get tutored by somebody with a phd uh in tokyo or beijing you know World language or in calculus is an unbelievable learning tool. Um, the problem is not with the power of this technology. The problem is that what we have done is basically taken boring, rote, ineffectual classroom environments and tried to throw them up online. And it turned out they were even more boring and worse online than they were when kids were disengaged in class. The power of tech is always, you know, you've written about this a bunch always in the way it lets us rethink and revisit our organizing assumptions about how work gets done. And one of the big problems with schooling is that we haven't done that. Instead, from radios to TVs to Chromebooks, we've tried to slather it on top of the things that we're used to doing. And then we're constantly
0: surprised that it hasn't made much of a difference. Could remote schooling realistically have been significantly better or were the poor results pretty much inevitable given how sudden the pandemic was in the beginning?
1: Um, so both, uh, March, March, 2020 to the end of the, March to June, 2020 was going to be a train run. Um, only 5% of teacher preparation programs in the U S have teachers do any training in virtual environments. Uh, teachers aren't prepared for this school districts don't know what they're doing. Uh, a lot of the tech is glitchy and frustrating because it's bought because it, it seems promising, not because it's workable. Um, this was always going to be a problem. But school districts then had a good five, six months um, before September 2020. And you could have imagined a story when a lot of these folks, um, you know, rolled up their sleeves and were working 16-hour days, um, working with software developers to build dynamic, engaging online modules, where they were training their teachers intensely. And that just didn't happen. It did in a couple of places, like Eva Moskowitz's uh, Success Charter School Network was remarkable at this. Uh, some of the learning pods that we saw emerge, I think, were so, uh, were so promising because they took stuff like the Khan Academies uh, online backbone. And then you had people who were really interested and interesting, uh, working to build kind of intimate learning environments around it. But that wasn't what school districts did. What they did was they tried to take kind of the, the organizational routines of we have this many kids and this much contact time and we kind of run things like we know how to run things and throw it up online. By September 2020, not even half of teachers had gotten any additional training in remote teaching in that prior six months. So most teachers came into that environment not knowing what they were expected to do. Even good teachers, even good teachers in classroom environments have, have frequently complained that the things they're good at don't translate. Oftentimes, teachers in classrooms are good because they know how to put a hand on a shoulder. They know how to look a kid in the eye. Those skills don't translate the same way online. There's other skills that are useful in but we didn't do much to help teachers kind of acquire or master this. So I think what happened was, this is always gonna be rough, um, you know, the decision to close schools as long as we did, I think is widely recognized now as a profound mistake. And it put educational leaders and teachers behind the eight ball. And I don't think you can blame teachers for any of this. I think they, they were put in an impossible situation and did what they could. But I do think a lot of the policymakers and educational leaders uh, really need to take ownership that they could have done far better than
0: they did, and uh, and they didn't. A couple of minutes ago, you you said that parents really got a kind of a granular, you know, look at what went on in a classroom. Um, Is that going to change the politics of reform at all going forward? Do you think?
1: You know, I think it already has. Uh, You know, I mean, I think a lot of what we've seen as far as um, the, the, the heated fights over masking, uh, over critical race theory, some fights over gender identity. Um, a lot of the stuff relating to, say, gender and race, not masking, but gender and race, has been playing out in schools um, over the last seven, eight years. Um, you know, I, I was writing about this stuff in 2016, 2017, as was our colleague Robert Fundisio. Um, But a lot of it was just off the radar parents didn't have as much uh, visibility into what was happening in schools and classrooms. And I think one of the things we're seeing, some of the fights are so heated because some of what's been happening under the surface is now newly visible and parents are speaking to that. So I think that's one thing. Um, I think a second way it changes is, look, um, I heard two polar opposite reactions from parents uh, when they were writing me, uh, especially over the first, say, six months of pandemic. One response was, I had no idea how hard our teachers work. Um, boy, they're you know, juggling 25 kids. I can't get my kid to sit still. So I don't know how they do it with 25. The other response I heard was, what the hell do teachers do all day? I send my kid to school for six and a half hours a day. And it looks to me like they're only doing 35 minutes of work. And on these asynchronous days, I'm not even sure they got 35 minutes. And I think both of these reactions show that parents feel like they don't have a real good grip on what kids are actually doing all day when they're kind of out of sight. And so I think, I, I suspect, we'll find out if I'm right, is that when we talk about these high fluting reforms that we've spent so much time on over the last 20 years, things like teacher evaluation systems, um, I think those are going to resonate a lot less. I think what parents are going to want to hear about is what is what is this going to affect that my kid does all day. And so questions of like how much time there is for arts or for language or what kind of reading and math programs are using, I think are going to
0: feel more sally uh, than they have for a while. You know, people complain about Congress, but they generally like their own congressmen. And they're concerned about American education, but they generally think their local schools are probably doing a pretty good job. Do you think those warm feelings toward local schools are waning? Are parents becoming more willing to consider local school reforms?
1: I think that's right. You know, I mean, you're exactly right. Historically, the polling has been 75% of parents give their kids' school an A or B, but only about 35 or 40% give the nation school an A or B. Um, so it's Congress and my congressperson, exactly the same thing. And, you know, one of the things that's been surprising is how much that has held up through the pandemic. Even parents who were really frustrated that schools were closed kept saying they still kind of like their kids' school. Um, but I think two things uh, have happened that might matter a lot. One is a lot of suburban parents who bought their house and paid a premium to be by their school were suddenly frustrated because one of the things they counted on as a given was that their schools would be there for them. And so I think you've seen that in some of the new dynamics around school choice. That choice is now appealing to folks for whom it was previously not personally relevant. It was more of an abstraction. And then the second thing that's gone on is, as families have experimented during the pandemic with online uh, supplements, online supplemental learning or learning pods, or as they have gotten, you know, turns out um, at post pandemic, 60 plus percent of parents say they'd like to have their kid at home at least one day a week. Uh, EdChoice is even falling on this. For parents with children with special needs, it's even higher. Uh, This kind of makes sense, right? Like it turns out the parents didn't like having schools say, we're closed, it's your problem. But I have heard from enormous numbers of parents who said, you know what? I like having some of this interaction. If I could do it just on Wednesday or just on a half day. And uh, so I think what's happened is one of the things that's happened in the school choice conversation, school choice is a good solution if you don't like your school and you're trying to get out of it. So again, that's the 15% of parents who give their kids school a D or an But if what you want is more support, more option, the chance, this hybrid model where your kid's home a little bit, but mostly at school, that's not about school choice. That's about educational options. That's education savings accounts. That's course choice. That's some of these other. And what you've seen, I think, is enormous interest in expanding the palette of options. And that's why the last couple of years you've just seen a flood of choice-related legislation that's not just charter schooling and school vouchers, but that's really opening the door to some of this other kind of stuff.
0: Could you talk a bit about what we should be doing differently in terms of who becomes a teacher and what teachers spend their time on during the day? Yeah, no, it's, it's a great question.
1: You know, and one, I mean, one problem with the fact that public schooling is always bailed out when times are tough um, is that you never have to make hard choices. So sometimes that we don't add as many staff, but we never actually ask public schools to change what they're in. So look, with with teaching, an easy way to think about this is if you go to your local elementary, and frankly, it can be a charter, a district school, or a private school, and you say to the principal, hey, can we visit your best fourth grade reading teacher? And you'll go and watch them, and they'll teach reading for 90 minutes, and math for 90 minutes, and she'll spend 60 minutes loading and unloading kids off buses, and 40 minutes watching kids eat lunch, and you say, Let's go look at your worst reading teacher. Same thing, go to your local hospital, and look, look for some kind of cardiovascular surgeon who's about to cut a kiddo, you know, about to operate on somebody. And she starts peeling off her gloves at 90 minutes. And you say, Doc, what's up? And she says, Hey, it's my time to push the jello card, but don't worry, the worst cardiovascular surgeon in the state is going to take it from here. Like, you'd be, that's an insane way to use scarce talent. So the problem is we've got a teaching profession, which made a lot of sense when Horace Mann was building out the common school in the 1840s, but which basically we need three and a half million teachers all doing a whole mix of activities, some of which make a big difference for kids, some of which are a complete waste of their time. Some of these activities teachers are good at, some they're not good at, and nothing in the way we organize the work, assign teachers to kids, compensate teachers is reflective in any way of which stuff we think is important or of which teachers are good at the stuff that's important. So if you look at a law firm, you look at an architecture firm, you look at like a think tank, instead there's a, you know, there's concerted effort to say, all right, which of these tasks are really impactful? For instance, every principal you talk to will tell you that teaching kids basic literacy skills, academic awareness and phonics and stuff is crucial. So you can't get anywhere with kids unless you've got strong teachers working with them. So if you've got one or two strong teachers and you've got three other teachers in first grade, it would only make sense that you're rethinking how do you organize your teachers as a team where the teachers who are doing the most important work are shouldering that, not for the kids lucky enough to get assigned to their class, but for all kids. And then those are the teachers you can't afford to lose. So instead of everybody making $67,000 a year, Those teachers are making a buck and a quarter, and other teachers are making less. And if you lose them, it's a shame, just like if you lose an RN. But on the other hand, it's a whole lot easier to replace an RN than it is that cardiovascular surgeon. So, what this argues for is a need to think differently about how we staffing requirements, contracts, teacher record, teacher record requirements, the whole assemblage of stuff that has
0: built up around how we use adults in schools. If if we're going to start specializing, uh, a bit. Might you have to have just more teachers to, to fill sort of these specialized roles if if one teacher isn't going to do sort of soup to nuts everything? There's a whole bunch of ways you can you can
1: tell these stories. And, you know, and I'm like, look, I always believe I'm much more interested in the people on the ground figuring out what works, giving their talent and their kids needs than, you know, those of us who sit in DC office buildings trying to like spew solutions. solution. Um, but, you know, also this is where the technology comes in. There's this outfit that I talked about in the piece we're chatting about called new classrooms uh joel rose launched it under when joel klein was chancellor of new york they, they say look most fifth grade math runs the way you used to play an lp if you bought an album in the 1970s you put the needle at the first one and you play it through so kids show up day one of school there's a scope and sequence and teachers teach you this stuff for a day and a half and that stuff and if the kid didn't learn it the teacher tries to catch them up and if kids are absent they miss important lessons they said wait a minute there's this thing called like digital music Why don't we test kids before the year starts? We say there's 73 learning objectives in fifth grade math. If a kid already knows 24 of them, why waste their time? Let's start them on the ones they don't know. Now, if you're going to do this with, say, five teachers and 150 kids, obviously, you can't have five teachers each customizing lesson every day. We talk like it's feasible. We call it differentiated instruction in education. But I can tell you as an old high school teacher, there's no way you can actually do it. So what they say instead is, wait a minute, we've got all of these new learning tools at our disposal. We've got these one-on-one computer tutorials where artificial intelligence is actually really good at teaching some of these math functions. We've got some teachers who are really strong at large group instruction. We can loop in some of these tutors in very specific targeted ways to support kids with specific challenges. So then the argument here is actually, you don't probably need to add staff. What you need to do is unpack the teaching job in a way that you can hand parts of it off to those tutors, parts of it off to computer-assisted instruction. And what you're doing is the teachers are spending a much higher percentage of their time doing things that actually change kids' lives
0: instead of shuffling their way through kind of the daily routine. Can we recruit more teachers from the, from the better schools as well as make it easier for you know, sort of mid-career professionals to become teachers? Yeah.
1: Um, So, you know, again, part of the problem here is that we've got a model that used to make sense, just doesn't make sense. Uh, If the public schools were a car company, you know, they'd be GM. If they were an airline, they'd be TWA. I mean, what they're doing worked really well in like 1937. Uh, So it used to be as late as the 1950s, over half of college educated women became teachers because no other avenues were open. And. Trying to recruit somebody in the 1950s and say, hey, I've got a job you can do for the next 30 years was appealing. Um, today, only about 15% of college educated women become teachers, and nobody who comes out of college wants to do the same job in the 2050s. So, partly, you know, we, we talk endlessly about this uh, shortage of teachers. What it is, there's a shortage of people who want to do the job the way we've configured the job. Who wants to teach? Well, today, lots of people who have had successful first careers have some money in the bank, and if they, change it, if they change at age 45 or 50, they've got another 15 or 20 years in them in a lot of cases. They're mature adults. They could make fabulous teachers, but not only do we make them jump through hoops and Mickey Mouse coursework to get certified to teach, but then we start them at the bottom of the pay scale. It's both frustrating and insulting. So, yeah, partly we need to absolutely reimagine what it means to Come into education as a mid-career adult in the 21st century. The other part of this though is, look, we have three and a half million teachers. That's one out of every 10 working adults with a college degree. We just have too many people. We need 300,000 300, teachers a year just to plug attrition. All of the nation's selective colleges combined don't graduate 300,000 people a year. So we could get no lawyers, no engineers, no accountants, no doctors, and we still want to get enough teachers. Um, the other, the other way to think about this is, look, um, 50 years ago, we had uh, twice as many kids per teachers as we have today. In other words, we've hired teachers twice as fast as we've added students over the last uh, 45 years. Today, we have a student-teacher ratio of 13 and a half to one. Now that doesn't mean you see an average class size of 13 and a half to one because how we're using teachers, but we have a teacher for every 13 and a half kids if we had kept the same student-teacher ratio we had 45 years ago and had used all those additional dollars to pay teachers rather than to double the number of teachers, average teacher pay today would be about $135,000. That would be median teacher pay would be about $135,000. I think we would find it enormously easier to attract talented folks. And we would also find it much easier to be conscious about quality in the selection and hiring and induction process. So partly what we're suffering for is that we have made this in, insane investment, this huge investment in quantity over quality. And then we ask, how do you get an enormous quantity of quality? And partly by, by making that the question, um, we've made it so that there are, no, there are no practical answers. We have to rethink what we're trying to do.
0: If someone had a big pot of money and they wanted to give it to their local school. And they wanted them to spend it on technology. What would you advise those schools to spend that money? If they had to spend it on technology writ large. What should they spend that money on? I would say, look, let's take
1: a lesson. We, we, we've had one learning technology I know of, which is actually transformed education. Uh, it's about five centuries old. Gutenberg greened it up. It's called to write the book. Because before that, you had to be real close to your teacher so that they could say stuff to you. Once we had this book, you could learn from anywhere, or anybody, anywhere around the world. And you could learn whether or not you were in school. In fact, the book flipped the classroom because now you could learn your lessons at home and show up and talk. That was profound and transformative. So the way that technology can change the game is it can change who kids learn from, how kids can learn, and the relationship with teachers. Um, best model I've seen of this is a really good high school football program. You go in and you see suddenly coaches have preloaded all the plays on the iPad so that instead of spending five minutes hand drawing 22 X's and O's and then erasing and then do it again, they can kind of walk kids through it and the arrows and X's are moving. Uh, if a cornerback is having trouble with foot placement, an assistant coach pulls out an iPhone, takes a quick video, and then they're looking at it in real time. Think about the last time you heard about your, kid, your kid's teacher pulling out an iPhone, doing a quick video of your kid doing a presentation and then having that debrief with the kid. It's not about new technologies. It's about what are we doing with these things. So what, what would I do? I would tell them, look, tell the school first to figure out what it is teachers do with their time all day. Figure out which of these things are really making a difference in children's lives and which of these things are routine. Of the routine things, figure out which we can offload to tech. Of the things that are valuable, figure out where tech can augment how they're explaining it or showing it or giving kids feedback. And then make sure you're investing in helping teachers get easy to use, non-glitchy
0: stuff that lets them do that. My guest today has been Rick Hess, Director of Education Policy Studies at the American Enterprise Institute. Rick, thanks for coming on the podcast. It's been a pleasure, man. Thanks for having me.